My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our look shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humour. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modelling can go suck it. Um, (laughs) It's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. It's getting hard. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I don't get away because everything is just fine. I had the very great pleasure of sitting down with Stephen Jones in August at the National Gallery of Victoria. It was the day before the exhibition, The House of Dior, 70 Years of Haute Couture, opened. And the first thing he said to me was, don't you have those fluffies that they use on microphones? So fluffies are what sound engineers use to protect mics from the wind. And they look just how they sound, like big, furry, fluffy, kind of Sesame Street creatures. And of course, they reminded Stephen of hats. Most everything reminds Stephen of hats or inspires him to design them. Stephen Jones is the most extraordinary, most famous and most marvellous milliner working in the world today. He was in Melbourne for the Dior show because he's collaborated with the Paris Fashion House since the 90s when his mate John Galliano took over as creative director. And during Galliano's tenure in particular, from 1996 to 2011, Stephen made some of the most jaw-droppingly fabulous hats known to fashion kind. You need to see them. Like, words just aren't enough. It's not often I say that as a writer, but these are really things you need to see the pictures of, or better still, see in the flesh. The NGV exhibition is on until November the 7th, so if you are in Australia and anywhere near Melbourne, I recommend you make the trip to go and see it. We will be sharing a whole lot of pictures of Stephen's hats in the show notes too, so make sure you hop on clairepress.com to check them out. With Dior, Stephen also designed hats and headpieces for the designers who came after Galliano, so for Raph Simmons and now for Maria Grazia Ciori. He's also done loads of hats for other designers too. I'm talking about people like Ray Kawakubo, Vivian Westwood and the incredible Tom Brown. In fact, one of my favourite of Stephen's hats is made in the image of Tom's Datsun Hector. (laughs) Stephen's hats are often very witty and they're definitely very wonderful all the time. I really love them. And I do think that even if you don't reckon you're a hat fan, you will be when you've listened to Stephen. He also designs for private clients, of course, and... I've been to visit Stephen in his jewel box of a London shop through which the likes of Grace Jones and Rihanna order their Stephen Jones creations. But it's not just his own hats that absorb Stephen Jones. As we mentioned in this interview, he curated a major exhibition about millinery at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London in 2009. It was called Hats, an Anthology by Stephen Jones. And it was like this massive hit. It broke attendance records and it really proved that even if we don't habitually wear hats like we used to, we still want to see them. We're still fascinated by the fascinator. Oh God, sorry, I couldn't help it. So 
Stephen calls the hat an accent on an outfit, an exclamation point. And here's a quote from John Galliano from the forward to the book that went with the V&A show. Galliano wrote, you shouldn't ask, why do you wear a hat? What you should really be asking is, why are you not? Hats change and enhance. Indeed, they complete a silhouette. Always work up as well as down. You're meant to dress from top to toe, so don't forget the final flourish. And Galliano wrote, think of Charlie Chaplin without his bowler or Robin Hood without his cap, or rappers without their baseball hats, and the Queen without her crown. The image just doesn't work. There is a hat for all seasons, all faces, and all moments, he wrote. So in this episode, we touch on all that, but so much more. We talk about the importance of Christian Dior and his new look in the story of Paris fashion, and of the London club scene and the new romantics who were so integral in forming Stephen's taste. Like Simon Doonan, who we met in last week's episode, Stephen was a Blitz kid, and it is so interesting to hear about the creativity of that scene in the early 80s, which is also where John Galliano came up, and people like the late Lee Bowery, who was the Australian performance artist, who I would probably say is the most important fashion figure to have ever come out of Australia, and yet so many people don't know about Lee Bowery. We also talk about Marie Antoinette, about Anna Piaggi, who was one of Stephen's most famous customers, and another one, Princess Di. They were all major hat fans, and like I said, I reckon you will be too after listening to this episode. When I was at Ascot, you know, they have those, what they call fluffies. Like um, Sesame Street. Yes. Do they call them fluffies yeah. here in the side of the world? They had these fluffies, which I thought somebody had attached a hat to the end well, of the Well, I was going to say, you could find some great inspiration. Yes, I mean, it was this huge thing. And I said to the guy, am I supposed to be taking this seriously? Is this actually for me? Woo! I want to start by asking you about the archival pieces that you've been restoring and going through and creating more magic with. Yeah, uh, it was great because some of these archival pieces I knew about, some I'd never seen before, some were some of my own that I, I'd made, which makes me feel 100 years old, but now I'm considered part of the archive. But really, I think probably the most fascinating ones for me to see the hats from 1947 and 1948, to see how they were made, because these were hats really to be worn every day. It was a very different aesthetic to now, where hats, for example, in England or in Australia, are meant for display or to wear it for the races at Melbourne Cup, which is, you know, one day a year. Or a very festive kind of statement. I mean, often these would have just been a very chic hat to wear to town, not too big, or something you could travel in a motor car in. So often they were quite discreet, but sort of spectacular in their elegance. That's what I found out. And it was extraordinary to see them and also work and, and find out a few of the tricks that they used to sort of beautify the, the, the 1940s woman. Did you learn new tricks? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Very much about scale as well, because often these hats were very small. You know, before Christian Dior was a dress designer, he sold sketches, and certainly before he created his own company, he sold sketches of hats to various Parisian milliners. And when he was selling those sketches... The sketches, the hats, needed to tell their own story. 
So they had to have a lot of sort of information. So in a way, they were quite decorative. The hats that he designed to go with Dior were very different because those just followed the line Mm. and the silhouette. That whole thing about drawing the hats is fascinating, isn't it? Because I do know the story that he actually wanted to be a gallerist and he wanted to be an artist. And he opened an art gallery briefly, which sort of flourished, then didn't. And then the Wall Street crash happened and then Dad lost all his money. Mm-hmm. And then he had to sell his hat sketches. Yes, and in but order he was obviously to, good at it. Yeah, and in order to make money, he sold hat sketches. And, Who too? And different milliners throughout Paris. I mean, not to say everybody, but mm. quite a few different people. Yeah. Will we see some of those sketches in this exhibition? I've never seen any of them. Do they no, exist there's none, still? They ah. do exist. There's none in this exhibition, but I believe there are some in the book. But you know, there is a parallel exhibition which is happening in Paris at the moment. So in that exhibition. They have two of Dior's sketches. But in fact, interestingly enough, even with the power of Dior, they don't own them. It is the niece of the last head of his workroom who owns them. Wowie. And I believe doesn't want to sell them. I'll bet. Yeah. (laughs) Christian Dior is one of the magic names of fashion. Yeah. I mean, really, magical. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think that is? It's funny, when you look at all the different big labels within the fashion world. So many of them came from the leather or the luggage business. But Christian Dior really did start with fashion. And that's what he was about. He was about reinventing that silhouette into a more romantic silhouette. So that's why it's really about fashion. And it's also, it's a successful company. So for generations and generations of people, no matter where you are in the world, if you say Christian Dior, they probably know that's a French fashion label. They mightn't know if he's a dress designer or if he makes perfumes or lipstick or, or whatever, but they will know that he's a French fashion designer. And because of that, Dior has become a symbol of France and French femininity. And that's a tradition that really started with Rose Berta, the first official milliner, oh, and yes. Marie Antoinette. Can you share with us some little snippets about her? Well, Marie Antoinette was the person who really introduced fashion. The French court had always been a centre of fashion, but she really upped the ante. Like decadent. Yeah, and she employed... There's two words in French. There's couturière, and this is haute couture, which is literally high-cutting, and there's modiste, from which the word modish or a la mode or anything like that comes from, and that means milliner in French. And what it used to be is the couturiers created the silhouettes, but the modiste decorated them and made all the hats too. So when you see photographs of Marie Antoinette with a very decorated top pannier or whatever, and matching hat, and matching little frilly cuffs or something. And they all were the all bow- made, All the all ribbons the- and the bows, they were all made by the milliner. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Fabulous. Yeah, yes. Rose Bertin was this extraordinary woman, and she was the first milliner. And ever since, milliners have had that slightly magical place within the fashion firmament. That's giving a very flowery expression to unpicking a brim at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> but um, it's true. Um, you know, when... I have meetings with designers. It's always separate to the rest of the accessory teams, even though they do much bigger turnover in shoes or in handbags or in jewellery than little old hats. But hats are seen as something very special and not to be played with. You know, hats are so visible, so you can't really make a mistake. You and I have discussed before this idea that um, you're never fully dressed without the hat, that the hat can be the accent on the eye. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
and when we talked about this, we were talking about your dear friend Anna Piaggi, formerly of Italian Vogue, and the way that she approached hats. And she said she told you that she looked at her hat as protecting her, not just physically from the elements, but her psyche. Yes. And about this idea that um, she felt unbalanced without a hat. I loved that. Yeah. I mean, to me too, that's a wonderful expression, wonderful explanation of why Anna loved hats so much. There's another lady here in Australia called Deborah Quinn, who's one of my greatest clients and an extraordinary person and, and a wonderful collector. And she's not just a hat wearer, she is a collector. She really values her collection. And for her... I think hats have got a certain metaphysical sensation to them as well. And I think she's actually in the gallery at this very moment. I know her. She's a marvel. Yeah. I've never seen her without a hat. No, she always does. I think she's probably downstairs at this very moment having a tour. And yet not everyone in this day and age feels comfortable in a hat beyond the practical and the functional. Keep the sun off. Mm -hmm. But not that many people feel that they can embrace the flamboyance that a statement hat can make, right? No, I mean, most people freak out if they got a new pair of jeans, let alone a hat. And they will get this new hat and maybe they've, you know, not tried it on or not worn it or not felt the balance and it feels fine at the milliners or in a department store. But then when they get it home and they think that they're going to wear it to the races in a few days' time, that's when they start to have misgivings. And that's when it, sort of, in a funny way, can go wrong. Because the thing which will make a hat look beautiful is the fact that it looks effortless or elegant and make you feel graceful and make you look as though you're in control. Even though a very important part of a hat is being a costume for yourself and taking you to somewhere. putting on a character. Well, yeah, because most... It's so funny how in women's magazines they always say, oh, put this on and explore the real you. Well, I'm sorry, but most of the people I've ever met particularly my clients, know exactly who they are and would actually prefer to be somebody else occasionally. Talking of that exploration of other people, I mean, that comes back to all the stuff I love about fashion and dressing and playing. And yeah. Just for this podcast the other day, I interviewed Simon Doonan and we were talking about Blitz. Right. And that was the world that you owned. I mean, that was a world where you got had so much fun dressing up in the 80s, wearing amazing, flamboyant, fantastical looks, right? Yeah, Can well, you tell us a little bit about that? Well, that was... For Simon, as well as myself, it was right place, right time. And we didn't know we were going to be hanging out there. It was just in the late 70s and early 80s in London. In a way, we knew that something like that might happen. It's very different now, but Britain was going through a severe depression. There was the three-day week because there wasn't enough fuel to burn, so people could only work three days a week and take three days a week wages as well. They weren't paid for their full-time wages. They are only paid in proportion. Could have been a bit gloomy if you hadn't had the yeah. power I came of... from Liverpool and it was 40% unemployment. You know, three generations being unemployed. What's that going to do to a country? So I think we knew that whatever we wanted to have, and we didn't know what we wanted to have, it was like nothing that had gone before. And we had to create our own world and do our own thing, even if it was just for each other. And we were really a whole group of people. And was it a cliquey gang? Some people might have said it was, but there were people from everywhere. The thing that made the grade, if you tried, if you worked hard on your look, if you're working hard at your work, if you were doing something to try and create a new world, if you were sitting at home watching TV, forget it. I'm thinking about an Australian connection now, which is Lee Bowery. Yeah, absolutely. And I knew Lee when he first came to England. 
and he was extraordinary. And for people know, who don't know about Lee, could you sum him up if it's even possible? Lee was sort of a performance artist, but he dressed up every day in some extraordinary outfits. I mean, nowadays you'd only see those looks in the sort of freakier contestants in RuPaul's Drag Race. Meets Comme des Garçons Meets Runway. Meets Comme des Garçons Runway. But not but, even. I mean, he changed the, the shape of his body, didn't he? Yeah, but in those days, he was doing that. He was really experimenting with, with it. And he was doing it for real. He was, was not doing it for fashion. It's because he believed in it. That was the most extraordinary thing. There's the best ever clip and from the clothes from show. Also, is he from Melbourne? He's from Melbourne. I'm not sure which suburb, but I feel like saying sunshine. But I may have I, made I that I always up. remember <laughs> him. You know, he... Um, Sorry for the listeners to hear about this, but he used to do a performance which involved an enema. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was birthing as well. There was all sorts. Not not very nice, but always he would say to me, Mr. Jones, I'm terribly sorry. I'm going to go on stage in a minute. I'm going to do my show. And I think you should move to the other room because I don't think it'd be very nice for the hats. Oh! Because as well as being a completely bonkers freak, he was a complete Melbourneian gentleman. That's what people don't know. Hats. They always think he worried that about your hat. He, he, people always think of him as some crazy person who would be in your face, and he was the gentlest, kindest person. We um, had his manners. Yeah, and he really had his manners that he got at, you know, Sunday school. But that time with people like Lee Barried, with his whole, I mean, I, if you thought Kim Kardashian dressed in head to toe, floral gloves, dress, Givenchy, yeah. so He wore it with a floral mask as well, and that's the big difference. And a long time before. His butt wasn't as big as hers either. (laughs) Sometimes. Or or as glorious, depending on your point of view. Coming out of that time, there were also many other designers, creatives and people that you've gone on to work with ever since. Mm -hmm. What was it about that kind of hotbed of... I mean, you've talked about the creativity that comes from, I guess, scarcity, the mother of invention, that stuff. But it was more than that, wasn't it? It was about this kind of... Did you feed off each other creatively, the talents that you met at that time? Absolutely. I mean, we, for example, if John Mabry, the filmmaker, was showing a new film, we all turned up. If Kareth Wynne Evans, the, the painter, was showing some new paintings, or Peter Doig, we'd all turn up to the opening. We felt it was our duty to support our friends. It's quite also about exchanging ideas, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. But having original ideas, because if you thought that one person had stolen somebody else's idea, you know, they would not last very long. People wanted your own originality. And that was why it was quite tough. Because if you didn't come in up with the goods, you were out. I mean, it's, it's, I hope I'm not making it sound like a very tough school yeah. of life. It was in a way. But the wonderful thing is it all spurred us on to go and do things. How much did you know about business when you opened your first shop in the early 80s? In, um, oh. I mean, did you have a clue? <laughs> Nothing at all. I didn't have a workroom. I had a shop with a beautiful collection of hats, a shop that my friends were running and some other friends had done the building for, but I had no cash flow plan. I did have a bank account. I didn't have very sympathetic parents. And, you know, I didn't know how to run a business, but we sold hats. You had a currency of ideas. I mean, you had ideas, which I guess is the biggest thing you can have. Yeah, and and we sold hats from day one. and we sold All sorts of different people. I mean, obviously, the person who I got the shop through, who arranged it, was Steve Strange, who ran the Blitz Club. It was he who told the owners of the Blitz that there was this young guy who made hats and he's looking to 
have a shop or something. And then he told me, would I be interested in having that? So put us together. So it was Steve Strange, it was Spano Ballet, it was Duran Duran, all the pop stars, certainly. And then we had private clients, too. Like, we had the wife of the governor of the Bank of England. Then, back then. Then. And amazingly enough, we had the Princess of Wales, too. Because at that time, I just started to work with designers. I started to work with Jasper Conran, and he was making clothes for the Princess of Wales. This was just when she was first married. And I went to the palace and worked with her. Did you think it was a laugh? I was so nervous, I can't tell you. It even makes me shake now when I think of it. But she was the loveliest person and wanted to put you at your ease. And she was a woman... We were on the beginning of life's adventure, and so was she. She was, in a way, a newlywed. Um, She was experiencing what it was like to be a princess and to be our future queen. And she valued Uh, creativity and glamour. She did. I mean, she always had a lively interest in it. It wasn't Uh, something thrown at her. She sought it out, didn't she? Yeah. And what was so interesting was the fact that she really loved the world of fashion design. Not only the wearing of the clothes, but she was fascinated by the process. And in a way, when she was in the palace, she was slightly removed from, not say normal people, but, you know a regular life, but when she went to a designer's showroom, she could be there and they can laugh with her and, you know, they could gossip with her and she could have a laugh. It can sh- she could sit there with her shorts on and with her shoes kicked off and and relax. And Isn't so that was the that first part. Well, fashion allows some people to be more at ease, more themselves. Sometimes it can be a haven or a... Yeah. And then as the years went past... All of us living in London had huge respect for her because she was the first person, without question, to understand and make it public knowledge that she was concerned, wanted to do something to help the HIV and AIDS crisis. And there was nobody else in England. There was Elizabeth Taylor in America, there was Elton John in Britain, and there was Diana Princess of Wales. And because of that, I think... Especially when I know in Australia that you're going through the big vote. And this is sort of part of the whole thing, that she was the most forgiving, the most accepting. Um, It didn't matter what sexuality you were, what colour you were, what religion you belonged to. She was accepting of everything and believed that everybody else should do the same. And I do think that's something and that's an understanding that she got from the Queen because that's the Queen's big thing that she's been trying to do her entire life. When you mentioned the HIV crisis, it rocked the fashion industry, didn't it? I mean, it really did. It robbed the fashion world of many, many creative talents at the prime of their time. Mm -hmm. It was a terrible time. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. What are your memories of that time? Well, in Britain, we had a slightly sort of second-hand response to it in the way that I'm sure in Australia you did do as well because this is something that really started in West Coast America and we started to hear of all our friends or people that we knew or friends of friends that were starting to get very very sick and it was this they didn't know what what it was was it a disease was it something in the water was it you know people really did not know then eventually HIV started to be understood how it was communicated and then by then it was really underway and absolutely decimated the populations in San Francisco and Los Angeles and then New York and started to have a very big effect in London too. 
and here. Mm. How did that, um, I mean, we've meandered off topic, but I wonder how that affected, because fashion is a barometer of its times. Yeah. And shows reflect their times. Yeah. Shows reflect, as you were saying, I don't know, post-war austerity after Dior, and yes. then the one, the flamboyance of the great big yeah. skirts. Yeah. How did 80s fashion react to the AIDS crisis? It went in the opposite direction. You know, it's like Rome is burning, so we're going to have fun. And some of the absolute extravagance and stylish and multicolored fashion came out in the late 80s. Of course, there was the chic power suit and the whole Donna Karen thing. Thank God that Donna was doing that for everybody because... Conversely, a lot of men were designing, you know, multicolored sequins and things which were really sort of fun and extravagant. Escapist. And, and, and escapist, because we didn't know if we were going to see tomorrow. God. Well, I, I was 60 in May, and I have to say that I was amazed to make it to 30, let alone 60. Happy birthday. Thank you. Talking of extravagance. Yeah. You've worked with the House of Dior for 21 years. Yeah, yeah. That's mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. During that time, you've worked with all different designers, but I want to talk a little bit about Galliano because I've been looking at the wonderful archival material and the pictures from the shows, reminding myself of some of those things. I mean, such wonderful lines, but also such a feel for flamboyance. Absolutely. I mean, John loved extravagance, and he, he loved a hat too. I once asked him, why do you like hats so much? And he said, that's a funny question coming from you. And he said, but, you know, for a fashion designer, why would your interest stop at the neck? Did he? It's, a, it's Did above he? the neck that it becomes really interesting. So he's seeing the whole... So he's seeing the whole thing. And sometimes you can have just hair, but how... Well, he never just had hair either. It well, was always... It's, it's always, you know, it was always a major hairdo. It was another element of design. He loved putting that whole different design look together. And funny enough, Raph did that too. But, you know, Raph was more reductive. So sometimes we did veils and things like for his first show, and sometimes we did bonnets. But so often he did not do hats, even though I knew him when we worked together when he was working at Jill Sander. So we had a very good working relationship. But I think also coming after John, which was so hatty, he wanted to do a different look, basically. So hatty is an awesome phrase. Yeah, so hatty. <laughs> Can you tell me about a couple of examples of wonderful hat moments? I can share with you one of my favourites, which, um, forgive me if I don't remember the season, but the artist's ball couture. Yes. 2007? Yeah, yeah, 2007. I'm going to describe a hat like a palette, but yeah. I'm describing it with my hand yes, angled. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, and I mean, let like an artist's palette, if you're wondering. It's, a, it's not a flat palette, it's a domed palette, and it's made from grey suede, and there's four paint splodges in it of red, white, grey, and black, but they've all been mixed together a little bit. You know when you're a child and you've got a little watercolour set and your yellow ends up always looking green because it gets some black in it, or the red always goes into the blue so it goes a bit brown. So the palette splodges were like that. And those were some of those sequin splodges. They were made from sequins and beads. are some of the most expensive things that I've ever put on a hat. Are they? They cost £2,000 each. Wowie. So that's £8,000 just on small elements of embroidery. Then there was the making of the hat. There was the dyeing of the suede, especially. And we had to have that paintbrush, which is on the back of the palette, made specially because we couldn't find one of the right size. It this was is like the three, extravagance. It, it was three centimetres too short or something. I can't remember. But that was a wonderful hat. I'm glad I picked that one. I just picked it because I thought it looked so marvellous. 
The other extreme hats, I think, were for the Egyptian show, which was a, a local tour show. There was one which opened the show, which was a Nefertiti crown from Lower Egypt, but the proportions were taken to extremes. It was about a meter long and stood up straight from her head, and it was in gold metal. Neck ache. Yes. <laughs> But she had, her outfit was incredibly heavy too. And also to wear with that, I made her her beard because in ancient Egypt, all women wore fake beards. So that was also made out of cast resin and plaited gold leather. I'm speechless in response, but I I wasn't speechless because what I was thinking was how much work do you have to do in terms of research and in searching through this historical... Huge amounts of research for every hat, even a hat which looks modern, there's a huge amount of research, most of which gets thrown out. Is that the joy? But that's the joy too. I mean, I love looking through that. I love looking up Google images, sorry to say, when I'm on a bus or running from point A to point B. I love looking through the library at my workroom in Covent Garden in London. You're I'm going to even say historian. You're a curious, you're an archivist. I mean, your exhibition at the V&A in 2009 echoing what Cecil Beaton did in 1971, the first time anyone ever really looked mm-hmm. at retrospective fashion in a museum yeah, context. Yeah, yeah. That's actually, for anyone who hasn't had the chance to read the book attached to the exhibition, we'll share it in the show notes, and you must, because that's a lesson in the history of millinery, and it's fabulous. And it's very interesting that you brought up the fashion anthology by Cecil Beaton, because this exhibition that we are here in Melbourne now is a direct descendant of that, because that was the first exhibition on 20th century fashion. And from that, Cecil Beaton told Diana Vreeland, you should go and become the costume curator at the Met. And it was then she went to do the collections there. She invented the Met Ball, which Anna Winter then took on, and it became the huge thing, the subject of the film, which is out now. And it all came from that exhibition at the V&A. What's your take then, as we are having this interview at the NGV in Melbourne on the eve of the opening of the 70-year retrospective of Dior exhibition, what's your take on fashion as art in a gallery context? I think fashion in a gallery context is a wonderful thing. You know, when I first started fashion, you know, the wearing of the outfit was the final end product of going from the designer sketch, being shown on a catwalk, being featured in a magazine then going through and being purchased in a store. But now, 50 years later, 70 years later, that's actually an exhibition because it is an applied art. I'm sure the discussion will go on for many, many years, whether it's fine art or not, but it certainly is an applied art. And I think for galleries and museums around the world, fashion is incredibly important. In a way, the people who are coming to see paintings and sculptures in museums The museums already have those people. What they need to have is a new young generation of people who are being tempted by the idea of fashion and then will look at other things within the museum. That's why they're all doing it. Apart from that, it's eye candy. The language of fashion is international. It doesn't need to be translated. And everybody from a fashion person to a mum, that's not saying that mums can't be fashion people, by the way, you know, to a man to a child, can understand fashion. For example, when we were doing... There's one thing I learned from doing the exhibition at the V&A in London. When we were doing the layout of the hats here, everybody was very surprised, because I, when we were arranging the cabinets, because I went down on my knees, and they said, what are you doing? I said, working out what that hat will look from a child's height. 
That's so great. And yeah, I mean, I think it's something that they consider, but it's not something maybe they thought that I would do. Because a child would go on and say, Mummy, where does that go? Is that a cake? And then she'd say, well, it goes on your head. And they said, really? And the thing is, children have no boundaries. So they get home and they'll put a flower on their head. But that you know, could uh, be the spark that makes them care about the next level, the yeah, next maybe it step of their art journey. Or art or another or sort of expression. Egypt. Yeah, or Egypt. Yeah. May we finish by, if I ask you, where if you could share a formative moment from your childhood. Do you remember? Do you remember a moment where you saw a, something in a museum or something that captured your imagination and made you want to be applying that art within you? There's so many cases like that. One which was my mother showing me the Hogarth line and paintings by Hogarth when I was about five. And, but that would be quite a glamorous version. The real truth is that probably when I was about six or seven, there was a TV show on TV called Thunderbirds. And this was a TV show with puppets in. And it was all about the future. And I don't know if you had it in Australia and New Zealand. Well, I the remember same. Thunderbirds I go. Yeah. And <laughs> I wanted to be a puppet when I grew up. But I think what it was that I wanted to invent this whole magical world of my own where it all made sense. And that whole idea of fantasy and role play, I saw in this TV show. So maybe, you know, I didn't want to be an aquaphibian. A what? Aquaphibian. I don't They're, even know what that is. Those what the sort of fishmen were. Oh, yes, I see. They, they, yeah, they travelled. I just remember, wasn't it Troy? I yeah. just remember Captain... Yeah. Oh, I'm going to look it up. I just got mixed up. That was in Stingray. I but... can't remember. Oh, yes, I can't yeah. remember, yeah. but they were wonderful. Who was Marina? Marina. Marina. She was a puppet who swam. Yeah. Marina <laughs> couldn't speak, but she was so much more interesting than my sisters. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen Jones. What a pleasure and a delight. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Marina. Aquamarina. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm curious too. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you